John Lennon, actually, with your stage name, he came up with the Billy J. Kramer. And why did he want to add that J? Um, he, well, what happened was I was bringing out a record called Do You Want to Know a Secret, which I'd recorded actually before they brought it out mm -hmm. themselves and he, he called me into Brian Epstein's office who managed me mm -hmm. and he said I think you should call yourself Billy J. Kramer. It gives it more of a, a round sound and it, it'll be more catchy to more the public. More catchy. So it's, and it's work because, now first of all, do you want to know a secret? Let's just sing a little bit of that because... Uh, do you want to know a secret? I forgot it. <laughs> No, it's, it's uh, listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? And so you actually did that first? I, I did it before they uh, did put it on their first album. And look what they did. Uh, pardon me? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I, I was thrilled. I mean, let's face it, I think I was the first person to have a hit record with a Lennon McCartney song. No kidding. Before anybody else in the world. And John Lennon and Paul McCartney actually wrote seven songs for you. Yeah, in all, they wrote uh, uh, the follow-up was uh, Bad to Me, mm -hmm. which uh, John Lennon, actually, on my 20th birthday, I was doing a show with him and he said, I've got a great song for you. And I said, well, play it. He says, no, uh, uh, I'll come to Abbey Road next time we record. And I thought, he's not going to show. Mm -hmm. And he did. He was there on the dot and he sat down at the piano and played the song. Welcome this week's Only with Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone. Let's see what's going on in the news this week. Paul is still continuing his tour. Yeah, he's swaying by here relatively close. Into Dallas, and he was in Winston-Salem, and he's getting ready to go through Florida. Next week, when you guys are getting this, I will be in Orlando, Florida. You're having to do that for work, right? <laughs> no, but I did convince Kit to actually go. She was like... No. It's like, you're going. No, <laughs> you're going. Okay, I'm going. Well, that's great. An entire condo on Airbnb was cheaper than a hotel. And so it's like, I've got four rooms. <laughs> you want to pay for a ticket? You're going. Well, that's pretty cool. I hear he puts on a good show. I believe that is the case. And Ringo's also getting ready to start his tour. And he puts on a good show. Well, I mean, it's a very different show than Paul's. It is. But yes, it's a very good show. He's still doing it. What other 80-year-old do you know that's up there doing jumping jacks on the stage? Mick Jagger. But that's about it. So Ringo starts uh, on May the 27th at one of his favorite places, Casino Rama in uh, Ontario, Canada. He named his album Ringo Rama after that place. Well, that's a good place to start then. He's got a first leg which runs through the 26th of June, ending in Clearwater, Florida. Then he's taking a little break. He's coming back in September the 23rd, starting off in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and running through October the 20th in Mexico. Ciudad de Mexico. All right. Mexico Auditorio Nacional on the 19th and 20th of October. That should be fun. Yeah, 80 years old. And he is now Dr. Ringo Starr. The Berkeley College of Music gave him an honorary doctorate of music, so that's nice. Yeah, well, I mean, if you consider drumming music. Oh, well. <laughs> I would get so many calls from my drummer friends. Rhythm sections in general don't get the fame and glory, unless you're Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. Exactly. As the line goes, who is the rhythm section in U2 again? We all know who Bono and the Edge are, but Larry, who's that? Larry, yeah. 
And the other guy. There you go. Consisting of Paul Hewson or Bono on vocals, David Evans or The Edge on guitar, Adam Clayton on bass, and Larry Mullen Jr. on drums, you 2 began performing as a foursome in 1978. All right. We are talking about the 1979 album, the songs Lennon and McCartney gave away. Plus a couple of others. That's not the official name of the, the album. Yeah, yeah. The plus a couple of others is just because I think there may have been an issue with Apple at the time. Because if you look at the song list, there don't seem to be a whole lot of Apple songs on there. Yeah, there's one, though. And it's the one that makes me think, why is that there? And that's the first song on the album. That's the song that really doesn't belong there. The first song on the album is Ringo Starr's I'm the Greatest. Written by John... It's interesting that 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 is on this album, but Six O'Clock is not. Although they already had plenty enough Paul songs on this record. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, we could kind of start with that. The idea of songwriting, of a, a group doing their own songs, was kind of unknown for the most part. I mean, you did have Buddy Holly, of course, and Chuck Berry. But a lot of artists didn't write their own songs. And so that was actually part of Brian Epstein's push was that these boys write their own song. And so as they got into it and they met Dick James and set up a publishing company, there came a point where they actually composed songs for other people. And that's a good portion of these numbers, although some of them are older songs that the Beatles just weren't going to do and some of them were were songs that they just didn't deem good enough (laughs) right so and the difference was paul has often talked about how they had seen themselves as kind of i think what did he call it rogers and hammersmith that they were a songwriting team almost outside of what the band was doing they were a songwriting team that's that carol king story you know that they were to party with Carol King in 1964. And it's like, oh, we so wanted to be the Goffin and King of England. And her slightly smart aleck response was, oh, you wanted to be a married couple from New Jersey, huh? <laughs> yeah. As we go, you'll find that Paul is much more enthusiastic about writing songs for other people. John does early on, but then I think, I don't know, bores, hard to say, but he doesn't go after it like Paul does. Probably in the early days, John kind of said, well, you know, I'm a rhythm guitarist. Nobody wants me to play on their records. So the only way I can get other people to play my stuff is for me to write things for them. But he didn't really do much. This is true. But I mean, you know, there's several interviews where he goes off and he complains. Not really complains, but it's like, well, you know, George is a lead guitarist. Other people want George to come and play on their records. And Paul is just so naturally musical you know of course they want paul to be on the records they don't want me to be on their records so right so they pursued this leaning hip more to paul which is why when we look at this album in total most of the songs are paul's although the album opens up with i'm the greatest which john wrote and john wrote a lot of songs for ringo goodnight vienna and cooking in the kitchen of love and uh, and he planned on writing more songs for ringo he had several prepared and there was talk about perhaps several Beatles getting together and doing this album again. Yeah, it is believed that Stop and Smell the Roses was to be another Ringo-type album. Right. Probably not all four together, but even that has never actually been ruled out as a possibility. Not billed as the Beatles, but a Ringo song with all four of them playing on it. Yeah, I think they held themselves more open to possibilities than the public did. The public wanted to see the Beatles, but they could see all four of them playing on the same song and it not being the Beatles, per se. It would be Ringo. And of course, we did finally get a Ringo and Paul version of Grow Old With Me. Yeah, yeah, he wrote several. Nobody told me there'd be days like these. It's kind of Ringo's voice, but not really. The thing about Ringo is that you kind of had to write a melody that was in a certain range and he kept it there and nobody told me he has a big bouncy chorus very similar to a little help from my friends a little bit i could see it the other thing about this record it should be noted that it was kind of a reissue although it was actually an expansion and a reissue of a 1971 record that was put out which had oh what 11 or 12 songs and then three really weird covers on it 
Bernard Cribbins doing When I'm 64. Will you still be sending me a Valentine? Birthday greetings, a bottle of wine. <laughs> right. Who is there for no other reason than we want to get yet another Doctor Who personality into a Beatles cover. Yeah, there's got to be that connection. After we get past I'm the Greatest, the second song on the record is One and One is Two. Yes. Uh, um, not a great song, and it was first offered to Billy J. Billy J. didn't think it was a great song. There's nothing about it, really, that's particularly memorable. It was reportedly written while the Beatles were in Paris, and there are several songs from that time, so he clearly was churning them out. Well, I mean, this was only a couple of months after he'd appeared in uh, the Mersey Sound documentary where he talks about once the bubble bursts, that he and John are going to go off and be songwriters and oh right. well the rolling stones are going to do our song and you know okay right so yeah it was clearly paul's ambition i think in paul's book he says that it's it's a memorable title but it's not a wonderful song <laughs> paul has since realized not a great song uh john realized right from the start that it wasn't a great song <laughs> when they went in and offered it to billy j he reportedly told george martin well Billy Jay's going to be finished once he gets this song. <laughs> there is a YouTube video which has the song and has a picture of the single on it. One and one is two, one and one is two, now that I'm in love with you. I'm hoping every day I'm going to hear you say, you really make my wish come true. Can't you see when I'm holding you near, all the things I do. The next track is a Billy J track uh, from a window. Right. Better than one and one is two. So apparently Billy J's career wasn't quite over. He turned down the right song and then picked this one. Late yesterday night, I saw a light shine from a window. And as I looked again, your face came into sight. It got all the way to number 10 on the UK charts. Yeah, it's not a bad song. As with several of these songs, this song was first considered by Peter and Gordon. If you listen to Peter Asher's radio show, every other week he'll say, Paul was writing this song, and if he said, well, I don't think this is going to rate as one that we're going to do, the first words out of his mouth were always, can we do it? Right. For whatever reason, he didn't like this one. This is a George Martin production. This sounds less dated than some of the other material on this album i mean one and one and two is not a great record and it sounds dated it's definitely of its time <laughs> and this is a, a nice melody and and reportedly it, well we know that billy J was okay but he did much like ringo he didn't have much range i always thought that was weird because you know bad to me ends on a high note to me and Billy Jay is still out there. If you go if you go to the Fest for Beatles fans, the odds are as good as not that you'll actually get a chance to meet and talk to Billy Jay if you want to. I like how you put it, if you want to. Some people don't necessarily want to talk to Billy Jay. Right. And some don't know who he is. <laughs> this was the last song that they gave to Billy Jay. You know, for being the middle of July of 1964, I guess it really didn't take that long for them to decide, we don't need to do this. Yeah. You know, until they sort of moved into the Apple era, it's like, we've got enough trouble getting good songs for ourselves. We don't need to worry about other people. And Brian, I guess, was also maybe a little less interested. Possible. And also Dick James himself. They were beyond the point of having to play songs with people. You know, people were just kind of lining up to do versions of Beatles songs that were already on their albums. So... They didn't have to pitch it to anybody unless they specifically wanted to. And people were doing covers. They didn't need an original song. Everyone was saying, oh, the Beatles aren't doing this as a single. We can cover this, either covered exactly like they did it or covered in our own fashion. And because it's a Lennon-McCartney song, because it's a song people are familiar with, it'll be a hit. That wasn't always successful. See Bernard Cribbins. <laughs> right. But in a number of cases, it actually was. The next is... Uh, 
the first of the Peter and Gordon songs, not the first that they released, but the first on this record. Nobody I Know. This is the song Paul wrote for us as our second record called Nobody I Know. Do you like Peter and Gordon? I do for the most part. I kind of listened to them all the way up through Lady Godiva. Well, they yeah. only had like, what, one more album after that. And, and, you know, there was just a very little while before Peter Asher came on board at Apple. Right. I mean, I know... Uh, I fall to pieces and things like that. So yeah, I liked them. As far as the acoustic uh, harmonizing duo goes. I was into them and Chad and Jeremy. It's the two that always get confused. And of course, it's even more confusing now because Peter Asher and Jeremy Clyde go out on tour these days. That makes sense. Because, well, both of their respective partners are no longer available. Right. They do Peter Gordon songs. They do Chad and Jeremy songs. Chad and Jeremy, best known to most of us for... Their appearance on the Dick Van Dyke show. For those of you who don't have their records, yes, that's true. That they had some, what was this song? Willow Weep for Me. And they had a few hits. And they had a really great album in, in 67 or 68 called Of Cabbages and Kings. That was a really fine album. I, I still like that one. And even though McCartney's supply of songs kind of petered out no pun intended he was still living in the house until 1966 so at that time peter was producing records taking care of arrangements unlike the beatles he had recognized that this rock and roll thing at least for him would not last forever at least as a recording artist yeah that there were other horizons uh, and he was also involved in indica and was apple and some of the more far out bits of apple history yes and as a a little connection the arranger that that peter asher worked with in in his work was mike leander who when it came time for paul looking for an arranger for she's leaving home peter that was kind of like there's this guy yeah. Well, and of course, Peter Asher would be the one who took them to Trident because that's where he was recording James Taylor. That's how Paul knew there was a working eight track there. Now, as far as the song, it's a good song. It's very much in line with all the other Peter and Gordon songs. Well, the melody is cute. If you took away the word, da 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 da. Yeah, know, almost it, like a child song. Yes, or a Disney song. <laughs> I don't think those were big favorites in the Lennon camp. There's no way this was ever even considered as a Beatles song. No. At this point, I think there were issues with lyric that Lennon would make fun of. And he mentioned at one point the whole, listen to the birds singing in the trees. <laughs> you know, th those are the kind of lyrics that Lennon was not really down with <laughs> well i mean that's the whole thing about world without love yes you know john would mock him ceaselessly about please lock me away or as the moonlight turns to june light well that's I'll, I'll be on my way so mccarty had some things with lyrics that i think took the songs out of the beetle realm <laughs> well you can tell that these are definitely very early attempts at songwriting for the most part Yes. These are the songs that George likes to say that he had to write his bad songs in public. Well, John and Paul, while they didn't write them in public, they certainly gave them to other people to perform in public. Yeah. Although as questionable that some of these are, they still show a certain amount of craftsmanship and skill. The skill so. of the record depends upon who's performing it. Billy J is a certain thing. Peter and Gordon is another and one thing you can say about peter and gordon is that they were always very professional in their performance and their arrangements were usually pretty good yeah as we're going to get to you mix a so-so song with a bad arrangement you get something pretty awful right you know and they had a sound peter and gordon the acoustic 12 string which was unique to them the next song on this record is uh, Light Dreamers Do. It's a song that we're all familiar with. The Beatles had performed it at their DECA audition. It's not a bad song. No, but, you know, time-wise, you really have to stick it early in their songwriting development because they recorded it January 1st, 1962. And so that had to have been written in 61, 60. There was a different kind of music happening. And so the songs themselves reflect that when i first heard them i always felt like the song sounded dated but ironically while it's not the best performances the deca audition versions 
don't sound hugely dated, not like some of the versions on this disc. And that may just be, well, it's the Beatles. Yeah, it could be. Which you don't get in the Applejacks version that we have here. trying to make their music sound more Beatles, current Beatles. When was it released? It was released in the summer of 1964. Right. So it would be going up against Hard Day's Night. Right. McCartney wrote it in 1957. So this was a seven-year-old song. This is one of the hundred songs that he claimed that the songwriting team of Lennon McCartney had written in his notebook. Right. We do get this version on Anthology 1. The Applejacks version came out on Decca. Yes. And I believe it was produced by the guy who turned down the Beatles. Mike Smith. Ironically. The infamous guitar groups are on their way out. Yeah. This was almost certainly recorded in the same studio that the Beatles did their 62 audition in. <laughs> We've got such weird bits of history coming back to these songs. Yeah, it makes you wonder whether, based on the way the industry worked at the time, did Mike Smith bring this song to the Applejacks? Like, this is a song. Is this a song he remembered from back then? It's all very strange. Then we move on to the first Billy J recording of Lennon McCartney's. Uh, that was recorded in November of 63, I'll Keep You Satisfied. Right. It actually got all the way up to number four. She Loves You was at the top of the charts. Those same weeks, by the way. And I think this is one that John had more of a hand in. So they say John was present at the recording of the this version of, of the song. This has, a, to my ear, kind of a similarity to uh, Bad to Me, which is another John song that he put out. I feel kind of confident that this is more him. We will talk about some of the John songs that are not on this disc once we finish going through this record here. <laughs> right. Then one of the songs which was at least partially responsible for them Getting signed by EMI, Love of the Loved. Each time I look into your eyes. Never one of my favorites. Priscilla Black, who was formerly Priscilla White until Brian renamed her. I never quite understood why he thought Black was a better last name than White for her. I don't know. She was the co-check girl at the Cavern. And had a big voice. She was a friend of Ringo's. Just around the time that she passed, there was a BBC three-part biopic of Scylla. It's like, okay, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah, well, she was big in England for a long time. She had a successful record career, and then in British showbiz, she did cabaret. I think she found her calling when she became a TV host. Right. Got a great personality and very Liverpool. And Brian was significantly responsible for getting her into the public eye, although once they got past the point that she was doing records that Brian recognized or that Brian was interested in, he sort of fell off and her career was to be managed by her husband, and for better or for worse. My impression of that, when he was thinking about paring down NEMS, Scylla was one of the three acts that he wanted to hold on to and was highly involved in getting this TV series set up. I think Brian would have kept with it, but he was also quite willing to let Bobby take over once he realized that, oh, Scylla's not quite doing what I want her to do. And, you know, we don't quite agree on these things and her husband wants to do it, maybe I'll let him do it. And of course, he was her husband. He was there. So, I mean, she's going to listen to him before he she'd listen to anybody else. Yeah. A Love of the Loved, it, it's a song we're all familiar with. She does a very torch rendition of it, very, quite a bit different than the Beatles version of it. This is another song that Paul sang in kind of that voice crooning. It, it just had a, a certain Latin flavor. The Besame Mucho thing. Yeah. And Scylla didn't sing like that at all. Her, her voice was big. Why? She, she's definitely going with the 
straight Mersey Scouse accent. But it did well. It charted. Yeah. Each time I look into your eyes, I see that the, the heaven lies. And as I look, I see the love of the love. It hit number 35, and uh, while it was not to launch her career, it was certainly to be much like Love Me Do, the song that would get her noticed by the record people. Yeah, her opening gambit, as it were. Exactly. Next up is Woman, not the John Lennon song. (laughs) No. Uh, It's a song which was credited to Bernard Webb. As an experiment. McCartney wanted to put a song out there. There were basically some stories in the press that Paul didn't like. Paul's feelings are very easily hurt. (laughs) Paul McCartney can write any old song, put his name on it, and it will go to the top of the charts. And it's like, well, I don't like that. So we're going to put it out uh, under a pseudonym. But it was published by Northern Songs. Well, they're legalities. According to Peter Asher, the ruse lasted about two days. And the pseudonym is different on the two sides of the pond. Capital had a different pseudonym for who wrote Woman. A. Smith. Which is apparently just their standard, you know, it's like Alan Smithy. Right. (laughs) It sounds like one was derived from the other anyway. But at the same time, I think this is a good record. It's probably one of the best of the Peter and Gordon records. Yeah. Got a great arrangement. And... It's a good little song, well-constructed. And it's very much in line with the Beatles arrangements of McCartney songs. It's got a little bit more schmaltz with the orchestra, but not quite so much as to be distracting. Yeah, it has that big bombastic end, <laughs> you know. And I think that's that would be unlike the Beatles. You know, it, it, it got to 14 in the U.S. And number 21 in the U.K., but, uh, you know... I think I actually prefer this to World Without Love. I think this is probably the best of the Peter and Gordon McCartney songs. Some of their yeah. own are, are pretty good, but... I loved it when he played it in Get Back. He did a cover version of Peter Gordon. Yeah. I love that. Great song. You did a beautiful and ready to go. Woman, as it sounds, never Yeah, I like that one. Woman, do you need me there? I like Courtney's voice. I love you. We did a much better one very first time we ever did it. And it was very dry, mm. just little, mm. with like about eight violins. How do you mean prettier? Very, but very dry, mm. you know, like, mm. yeah. really sound like a little string quartet, you know. But uh, I don't know, we were very fussy at the time, didn't like it, and so it got turned into a mammoth ballad. Mm. It's a great song, yeah, it'll still be great. like a... Yes. Done good, that. But it was all right, though. It was okay. It was just we were so fussy. We thought, this is the song, you know, this is the one. And we were so fussy about it that uh, we chucked it, jacked it in, you know, and just let them go and do it again. But they did it the next time. It was a mammoth. 
Murphy's and Gordon nice Street. Remember it, Glenn? It's yeah. two, two sort of big and... It's nice. Yeah. First time we did it, it was little. It was great, you know, it was really... This is a melody that lasts, you know. John and Paul have that whole discussion about Peter and Gordon at Twickenham. You know, always Gordon's still around, and and they and they talked about Peter's glasses and all of that. Oh, this is followed by a couple of not very good songs and not very good productions. <laughs> Tommy Quickly's "Tip of My Tongue," uh, not good. The song's not good. The record's not good. Yeah, it's so not good that in the white heat of Beatlemania. It didn't even chart <laughs> when, when back then anything with Lynn McCartney on it was beginning to chart. When I want to speak to you, it sometimes takes a week or two to think of things I want to say to you. But words just stay on the tip of my tongue. Tommy quickly recorded it in August of 63. So I don't know when it came out. I, you know, I would guess, you know, within a couple months, certainly before the dawn of 64. So it wouldn't have had a chance in America, but in Britain, we were smack dab in the middle of she loves you. And probably by the time it came out, we're talking, I want to hold your hand. I mean, it's probably September, early October that this is released. They offered it to a friend of theirs, Sonny Webb and the Cascades. I, I'm sure Sonny Webb was like, thanks, guys. No. <laughs> what do we do with this? Um, from what I've read, I don't really know what the situation was. But, you know, the fact that it was then given to a NEMS artist, Tommy Quickly, rather than giving it to somebody else. Maybe that was a business decision by Epstein and T. James. Now, there are claims that the Beatles considered it for Please Please Me, but given the fact that they never even attempted it for the BBC, I can't see John Lennon saying, yes, let's try this. Right. So, you know, whether that's real or not, I'm not sure. Right. If that's true, then it had to have been worked up to a point that was recordable. You know, I mean, they had to have spent some time on it and know it. So side one closes with I'm in love, which was released by the foremost, although they actually offered it to Billy J first and Billy J attempted to record it. Right. You know, this is back to what we were just saying about Billy J. He had a limited range. John apparently had to sing it with him <laughs> to get him to come up with even a quasi acceptable performance. Although they never really got to a master 32 takes. <laughs> and then abandoned that half of those were in a different key so <laughs> we'll just lower this damn thing and then he still couldn't sing it Ugh. not a great song this is an example of beatlemania raising a song it was released by the foremost in november of 63 and got all the way to number 17 that's a song that the lennon mccartney songwriting credit probably raised at least 20 places on the charts yeah it's not a particularly memorable song at all i got something to tell you i'm in love you know it's like okay That's the end of side one. 20 songs on an LP is kind of unusual. I mean, even though they're not the longest songs, it's still only maybe 25 to 30 minutes aside. Well, I guess that was kind of what they were doing. Isn't that was right around the same time that we got the 20 number one hits from Capitol and from EMI. Well, all these songs are, you know, of the old school. Some of them aren't even two minutes long. But it's still a lot of songs to be putting on one record. Even at 25 minutes, vinyl was less forgiving as you got to longer lengths of albums. Yeah. It's not like digital where, yeah, it's all going to reproduce perfectly. The inner grooves and the outer grooves are, are going to give you different performance. I guess you have to 
consider why these albums were being made. They weren't for fidelity. Well, and this came out on MFP, Music for Pleasure, EMI's discount line, which both Blast From Your Past and George Harrison's Greatest ended up on. And the rock and roll music album got split into two, and the two single albums also were out on MFP. So at the time, full LPs were running $9.99 or so, and these were $5.99 list price. But the value of this record is for people who were looking to collect all of this material. Absolutely. And that was the selling point. So you'd want as much on there to get people to buy it. The cover's actually not bad, although it is just John from Imagine and Paul from Revolver. Then color line drawings of each of these individual artists. It's very much something Wings was looking to be ascendant again, and George Harrison would have had his new album out. So they were thinking, okay, let's get a tie-in Beatles product. And that's where this record came from. Well, since it's the label is British, was it an import here in the States? Yeah, no, I don't believe it was ever actually released on Capitol. No, certainly not. My copy came from a record show many years later. Sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, I believe. And again, it was just because I was kind of looking for some of these songs. Right. That's why I bought it. That was the easiest way to get the majority of them. We flipped the record. The first song is probably one of the stronger ones, a Hello Little Girl. Yeah. You know, th- this is a song, when I heard much later, the original v- version of it, you know, you go all the way back to Quarry Man tapes. May 1960, yeah. the, the Grundig recording. So this song started off very much more like a Buddy Holly song. And it worked. time it morphed into something else which i don't like as much the deca version is not bad uh, not one of your favorites okay they offered it to jerry and did jerry try it or not i guess he did didn't he yeah it just uh, didn't get released until much later right much much later hello little girl i simply found that you don't care you never seem to see me standing there I often wonder what you're thinking about I hope it's me and blah 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 So I hope there'll come a day when you say uh-huh, You're my little girl And then it ended up in the hands of the foremost. And it did reasonably well. I mean, you got all the way up to number nine on the British charts. Yeah. And this was actually credited to McCartney Lennon. Yes. That whole order of composers goes through several permutations here for the next couple of months before it gets settled out. Okay, the second song on side two, that means a lot. Paul tried his best to do a vocal on this, and he just kept cracking up. So, I mean, you know, there is a Beatles version of this. Well, there's actually two Beatles versions of it, and they're somewhat different, but it just wasn't working for them. This actually sounds to me like they're trying to do the Roy Orbison thing. Right. Dun, 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 dun. And then the held notes. Yeah. But they were recording this during help sessions, and it, it didn't sound like the other songs. For sure. I mean, you can hear it on Anthology, so. 
Right. And it's one of those weird things where very few Beatles songs ever really got dropped for them. But this one and another one called If You've Got Troubles were attempted within days of each other and neither one of them worked. I think If You Got Troubles kind of worked. I mean, Ringo doesn't, you know, I'll rock on anybody. (laughs) I think it could have worked. And really, I guess that would have been the first Ringo song that they wrote for him. What did you have before that? You had Boys, you had Act Naturally. Right, Matchbox. We say this like it's always a big surprise. We're only talking about not even two years into the time that Ringo had been with the band. Well, right. Oh, it took them so long to write a song for Ringo. It's like, it's only been two years. (laughs) This is true. Next is another Scylla song, which shows off Scylla's voice real well, I think. It's for you. Right. I actually had never heard this song until the early 70s when Three Dog Night did an acapella version of It's For You. And I was shocked to see that it was a Leonard McCartney song because I had never heard it. Paul was real fond of this song. You go to the Indianapolis press conference, they ask him about which of your songs do you like or do you really want to talk about? He goes, well, there's ours and we'll talk about ours on another time. But if we're going to talk about songs that we've given to somebody else, this is my favorite right now. I don't give that any credence, really, because... Granted, she had just recorded the record and it was just coming out. They were plugging Scylla, but plugging her in the States where people may or may not care about Scylla Black. Yeah. At the very least, he was thinking about it. For sure. He did play on it. Uh, he's playing the piano, yep. John was also there uh, in the studio. Yeah. The note that I read said that John and Paul were there to help arrange the song. And I'm thinking, you know good and well George Martin is arranging this song. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, next is a weird song. One that, despite the fact that I've heard it through the years, I'm still not familiar with it. That's Panina. Yeah. Heard it in the bootlegs from Get Back. They do kind of a soft run through of it. I heard it on several bootlegs and then on this. The bootlegs were hard to decipher. There's two release versions of it. Uh, Carlos Mendez, which is, I guess, the one that more people are familiar with just because of the name. Yeah, although I think, what is it? Uh, John O'Hara? They're the ones who Paul gave it to because <laughs> they were the bar band. The great thing about it, once I came to it, is that it's like when you read the lyrics or hear the lyrics, it's basically a, a drunken note to his bar friends. The hotel was called La Penina. And so he talks about his trip. I've been to Albufera. I had a good time there. Then I came to Penina and found good friends. Drinking liquids, making music. Love has come to my heart. Beat the drums. And let's see, this is late 68, so Linda would have been there. Yeah, he, he was in Portugal. They were visiting Hunter Davies. Yeah, that's that trip. Yeah, but the last verse... Time has come, time has gone, time to bed, forgive me, friends, take my arm, girl, let's go home, thank you all, love from Paul. (laughs) Not a song where he spent much time thinking about the lyrics. (laughs) No. Although, supposedly he was, what, drumming behind uh, the bar band 
Yeah, he played for a couple hours, but he, he was playing drums. I mean, you can just kind of see it. I've heard that they kind of came up with a jam or something. And- he's in the club. They're drunk. I mean, he's been there for a couple hours. They're kind of wasted. So he composes a song. Paul liked to do that. I mean, we, you know, we've got those photos of them during the filming of Help. Right. You know, where he and John are just hanging out with the bar band and sort of jamming along. Drenched in sweat. Time has come, time has gone, time to bed, forgive me, friend. Take my heart, let's go home, thank you all, love from Because the the records that I heard were so bad, you couldn't understand the lyrics at all. In fact, it sounded like they were singing in a foreign language at times because they were singing with accents. Once I heard a cleaned up version, it's like, oh, okay. There you go. Uh, And I understood the record. The whole love from Paul just cracks me up. And that someone took this kind of jammy song and turn it into a record because paul mccartney wrote it well i mean wouldn't you do the same well yeah <laughs> yeah you got a record company you, you can put a mccartney credit or a lennon mccartney credit on it and it's like okay let's do it the other funny thing is that the was it carlos mendez yeah his version which i think also is on parlophone that i've heard the piano playing it goes wrong for like a measure or so it's not correct. <laughs> and it's like anybody would should have gone, we need to try that again. <laughs> Any amateur would have. Uh... Yeah. To actually hear that on a released record was kind of shocking. No time to go back and yeah. fix it. <laughs> right. How much will that cost? Too much. <laughs> then Step Inside Love, another Scylla song. This was the theme to her TV show. Yes. And became much beloved because of it. Because the TV show is popular, and so the theme song became very popular in Britain. Although I prefer Paul's sort of off-the-cuff rendition from the White Album sessions. Yeah, that kind of bossa nova thing. Yeah. It's a good record. I don't know how great it is as a song, but it's not a bad song. It would be the last of the originals that Paul would give to Scylla. Right. Scylla and the whole Apple Beatles circle kind of parted ways for a little bit. Although she would be around later. I mean, you know, the infamous story is that she wanted photograph. They were all together on a boat when George and Ringo were writing photograph. And Scylla said, can I have that? (laughs) No, we're keeping that for ourselves. Right. Next is Peter and Gordon's first big hit, World Without Love, which we discussed a little bit. Now, as we know, Paul had written the first verse sometime very early. But he was 16, apparently. 58, 59, somewhere yeah. in there. But it was only the first verse. At some point, he actually came up with the second verse. Right. John would have none of it. You well, know, the whole please lock me away <laughs> just cracked him up. So the story is that Paul would play the two verses he had around the house. Peter and Gordon got their recording deal and went to him and said, can you write a middle eight and give us that song? You know, again, everyone going, please, please, sir, can we have another? Right. I thought wasn't this was the first time. So as Peter Asher tells it, we kind of need a middle eight. And Paul said, okay, give me a minute. He goes into his bedroom, closes the door, comes out 10 minutes later and has his middle eight and the song is completed. The, the genius that is Paul McCartney. Right. He's got that skill. We do still have the demo. Peter has saved the two-verse demo version of it. And we hear that occasionally on the Beatles channel. I don't know that I've ever caught that, actually. It's also on YouTube. We'll put the link up with that. Okay. Next is one of John Lennon's early songs, Bad to Me. Bad to Me. Another Billy J song. Right. 
and it topped the charts. It deserved to top the charts. It's a good record. It is a good record for that time. It's not a, a record that has lasted. But it's still a listenable record. It's not so dated as to be tip of my tongue or yeah you know you can listen to it and not be embarrassed to have this come up on your ipod shuffle <laughs> right if it's a commission song he did a good job and then another peter and gordon song the last of the peter and gordon songs on this record i don't want to see you again which was a follow-up to world without love and it got as high as number 16 on the billboard charts right it didn't chart in the uk it's another one which is very much a Peter and Gordon song. The two of them singing in harmony, the acoustic guitar, the general feel of Peter and Gordon. Yeah. But I like it. Do you? I don't know. I never have cared for the way it opened, which is just starting with, I don't want to see you again. Yeah, just starting with the lyric rather than... Yeah, just... Yeah. A little hokey for me, but it got to 16. <laughs> now that, again, is probably a case of... The Lennon-McCartney did boost that a little bit, but it's still, a, I think it's a pretty good song and it's a pretty good record. Right. You know, it may not be the best, but it's it deserves the, what it got, I think. Yeah. Not at the top of my Peter and Gordon set. There you go. Okay. Next, a song that we've talked a little bit about because we just covered it in our, in our BBC series, I'll Be On My Way. Again, yeah. Billy J. Yes. With the B-side of their cover of Do You Want to Know a Secret? A complete Beatle-supplied single for Billy J. Kramer. Produced by George Martin. Right. Uh, also credited to McCartney Lennon. And right. as we noted, you know, it's got the June Light, Moonlight rhyme, and uh, it's a little bit hokey. The chord changes are okay, not necessarily brilliant. It's a song that the Beatles considered and uh, that probably found a better home in Billy J. They didn't need to be recording it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you look at all the songs that are recording right now, I can't think of one that I'd go, well, that would have been a better one. Exactly. And then the last song on the album, Chris Barber's Jazz Band with Cat. I love this song. It's a great song. It's it's a song that originated during the Beatles days in the cavern. It's one of those that when the lights would go out and George had to go and fix the lights for them, Paul would pick up his acoustic guitar and play. Yeah, you know, he, he did the same thing with uh, When I'm 64, the melody of it. And you can almost see this whole thing, Cat Call and When I'm 64. And it's, they're very joyous melodies. And th this was a lot of fun. Paul is the one who liked the jazz bands. John was not a fan. <laughs> right. John has commented on that several times. So that's the record. You know, it's not one that you're going to want to listen to all the time, but I would go looking for it. It's on YouTube. You can also find an MP3 copy on the Internet Archive. Yes. So, you know, it's worth listening to, uh, although there are better versions of a lot of these songs. You know, people have sort of taken them and said, what might a Beatles version have sounded like? The Weaklings in particular, Glenn Burtnick's band. Glenn Burtnick, who was in a number of different bands, but most notably he was McCartney in Beatlemania for a while. Right. Uh, he has a band called The Weaklings, and their shtick is they write original material, but they started out doing these lost Lennon-McCartney songs in a Beatles style with Beatle instruments. And they actually managed to make something of One and One is Two. Cool. And you can find that on YouTube. Yeah, I also think we should mention there are a, a couple of honorable mentions that weren't included on this record. Yeah, if they were going to go and re-release this, they could put it out on CD if they wanted to, although I don't think the market is there anymore for CDs. The two Apple songs, which probably weren't included because they would have been tied up in Apple and Apple legalities at the time. Goodbye from Mary Hopkin. Mary Hopkin had to go and re-record her own version just so she could release it. Yeah, same thing with James Taylor. Exactly. Although James Taylor changed it up, Mary Hopkin tried to replicate the record almost completely. Right. For, for both this and for... Those were the days. Paul does most of the backing on Mary Hopkins' Goodbye. I mean, we're familiar with both Goodbye and Come and Get It from the Abbey Road box. There's also the instrumental that McCartney did. 
thingamabob. From the Black Dyke Mills Band. Right. Another TV theme for a comedy series. And, you know, the theme, I'll come and get it. We think it's all Paul, but now we know that John was there. He was sitting there in the booth. I don't know what he contributed, but he was there. I find that interesting. John was on scowl. (laughs) But you have to listen to those entire sessions. Not only does Paul come in and give them the arrangement, he then goes through and auditions each band member to see who he wants to sing it. So, you know, the tape goes through the members of Badfinger attempting a lead vocal at Come and Get It. It's kind of an amazing session to listen to. Paul doing his thing. Commander Paul. (laughs) Well, exactly. And then the other one, which absolutely needs to be on here. We didn't know it at the time in 1979, but in the interim years, we've learned that John Lennon co-wrote a song with Johnny Gentle during their tour of Scotland in 1960. Yeah. I've just fallen for someone. I've just fallen for someone. If you're looking that up, that will be under the name of Darren Young. It is on YouTube, and you can look it up. We'll also put a link to it. John contributed some lyrics, although uh, (laughs) not the greatest. We know that we'll get by. Just wait and see. Just like the song tells us, the best things in life are free. He's quoting money there. (laughs) Well, there's also a song. The best things in life are free. Well, I think John was probably quoting money. <laughs> but more importantly, John apparently helped with the middle eight song. What I read, the way they phrased it, made it sound like Johnny Gentle didn't have a good middle eight. And John suggested something he'd already written. So it could be both the melody and the lyrics. He took something he'd written and stuck it in there. So they didn't really write together. They're sitting around, as musicians do. They may well have had a little bit of collaboration there. Perhaps. And of course, the credit for this didn't come out until years and years later. He wasn't credited on the record. Who was John Lennon when the record was released? Exactly. No, we're not going to give this kid any royalties. (laughs) We're not even going to give you any royalties, Mr. Gentle. We must remember who was in charge of Johnny (laughs) Gentle. Yeah, this is the record business. There's a couple other ones that we wanted to take note of. Misery, written for Helen Shapiro, who didn't want it. Right. Kenny Lynch took it. The Beatles version is the much better known version, but that's out there. Right. Then also, a lot of people know that uh, I Call Your Name, John gave it to... Billy J. As the B-side to Bad to Me. I wonder if Billy J was just the most opportunistic, or if Brian just really wanted to get Billy J some hits. I don't know. Just because so many of these seem to end up in his hands. Lennon gave him the J in his name. That's not actually his name. Lennon came up to Billy J. So somehow there, there's a connection there. I don't don't really know. Well, I mean, they were you know they were friends. They were both on the Mersey scene. But I find it interesting that they were much closer to say Jerry, the pacemakers, and the pacemakers. While they did get a couple. They either didn't want them, or they chose not to do them, or why do we want your leftovers, or do we want the competition? You know, Billy's never going to really compete against us. Yeah. And then, as mentioned, I want to be your man. The famous story of them finishing it up in front of the Stones, in effect, and giving him this completed song, which had an impact on them, and they have credited that experience as to them beginning to write songs as well. Peter Asher, he likes to tell the story that before the Beatles or the Stones version came out, that he and Gordon had worked up a version of I Want to Be Your Man, and they, and they were playing that in the clubs at the same time. But he can't remember how it went. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> they never recorded it. Right. His button on that story as well. Thankfully, it's not now, because we could have never gotten away with that, because somebody would tape it on their phone. <laughs> right. It's true. Different world. I just find that kind of an amusing story. Yeah. Paul was hanging around with Jane and maybe even talking to Mick or playing it to Mick and Peter Asher's there. Oh, we can work up a little harmony version of that. (laughs) And so they did. And apparently he says that they even introduced this as the Beatles are going to be releasing this real soon. And the Rolling Stones might as well. I mean, the Rolling Stones were a brand new thing at that time, but. Mr. Opportunity. (laughs) There you go. Then no reply. Right. People don't realize that was one that they actually gave to Tommy Quickly. Backed up by the Remo 4. 
Remo 4 and John and Paul contributing percussion, but it never got released. And so they recorded it their own version about two months later. You seem to be asking the question, why did they never give anybody one after 909? And yeah. that is a good question. That was a good record. Their version was pretty releasable. I thought so. Maybe two more versions and they'd have it. <laughs> it was almost there. But they were doing a, a decent version of it. I was just surprised if they're giving songs away or trying to play songs, why not that one? Dick James certainly was trying to play songs with artists at that point. They recorded a version of it in the studio. Absolutely. And so it's just weird that it just never got placed. Yep, I agree with you. So on our way out the door, we do want to mention, you know, we would mentioned the Weaklings. There's also cover versions of most of these songs, including Come and Get It and Goodbye. On an album released in 2003, The Lost Songs of Lennon and McCartney. The artists that are on this record are Kate Pearson from the B-52s. Graham Parker. And Bill Janowitz. And Robin Zander. Well, Robin Zander's on one track. Robin Zander is on That Means A Lot. Doing a good version of it, it's a much rockier version. And the song works surprisingly well in a not quite hard rock, but cheap trick hard rock. Right. A more modern version of this. Yeah, exactly. Except it's not the original version. It's just a place to find versions of these songs if you're looking for them. Right. But if you want the originals, yeah, pick up this disc. Although this disc has never been re-released on CD. As far as I know, it's not available on iTunes. 90% of the original songs are available on iTunes. So you, you can put it most of it together as a playlist, but there's a couple. That... It's on my computer. There you go. So if you're looking for it legally, rather than going and downloading the MP3s from Internet Archive, it is most of the songs are available, but the album per se is not. So that was the songs Lennon and McCartney gave away. There's actually a lot more songs, and we'll probably cover them sometime uh, in the future. There's a second volume of this that was a bootleg, which actually has a number of different songs from the solo years. You know, with the exception of I'm the Greatest, there's a lot more songs that John and Paul both gave to Ringo and gave to other people. Right. And, of course, we haven't even touched on George's output. So, Yep, Sour Milk Seed, which you're not a fan of. Well, that's just one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are many more. Yes. George was the one who was really giving away songs left and right to Doris Troy and Billy Preston and the Rada Christian Temple, the Apple artists. Right. It makes you wonder how many of those songs that he had stored up ended up being on other people's albums. And as we just noted, the whole Splinter first album is basically a George Harrison album, although George didn't write all of those songs. But, you know, gave away is a slightly generous term for that, I would say. Yeah, for sure. There's a two-volume series of books called Beatles Undercover, which not only goes through all the songs that they've written for other people it's every song by another artist that they have actually made a significant musical contribution on it's really kind of a cool set of books cool all right so that's it for this week uh we'll be back next week after i've seen sir paul in orlando florida all right <laughs> all right that, 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 okay that was my uh my paul's impression. <laughs> all right all right okay all right very good. All right. Take we care. We'll talk to you next week yeah. then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco. California. He said, I want to run a song by you and tell me what you think of it, Billy. And it was, I want to hold your hand. Ah. And I said, well, can I have that one? <laughs>
And he said, no, we're keeping that for ourselves. Uh, yeah. We're very excited. You have a new CD out. It's called I Won the Fight, and I, it actually includes a song that John and Paul wrote for you. Well, there was a, a song that I, one day I was in the studio and I had about 15 minutes left, and they came rushing and said, you got to do this song, you got to do this song. And we put about two tracks down of it. And it was to me it was never we shelved it i don't know why and i just thought for this cd it would be a nice thing to do for john and i we did remade it you know and tell me what that song is it's called i'm in love oh can, can you sing one little line from that yeah, for that she's my kind of girl she makes me feel proud she makes me want to shout out loud <laughs> yeah you sound fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I, I just want to tell Beatles lovers that um, you're going to be at the Beatles, what does it go? Fest for Beatles Beat fans. Fan. I'm sorry. Yes. That's at the Grand Hyatt tonight. The Gr Grand Hyatt. And I'm doing my show where I'm going to be doing some of my old songs, well, all the old songs, mm -hmm. and some of the new songs. And uh, we're going to have a blast. And it's, it's and wonderful. And so many wonderful stories, behind the scenes stories. Billy, thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.